Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're going to be talking about the short story Death and the Compass, a 1944 story by Jorge Luis Borges. We have read this in a translation by Andrew Hurley that's published in the Collected Fictions from Penguin Classics. This story represents one of two themes we're covering this year. The other one is a cult detective story. So we're casting a wide net with that. And then we're also looking at one author and their stories. And and this is uh, Borges, who you have voted on that we cover this year as our as our Patreon supporters. Yeah, this was a lot of fun to pick these two themes. I mean, to facilitate allowing our Patreon supporters to select these two themes, I should say. It was something that we did as kind of an expedient when you needed a lot of parental leave, but we still wanted to have (laughs) votes. But people really, really enjoyed it. And so we're doing it again, actually, to pick themes for 2024. We are doing that now. If you join us now on Patreon, you will get to participate in all three levels of that voting or three phases of that voting, maybe I should say, to have a say in what we're going to spend really half of the episodes for next year on. I would uh, love for you to do that. I think it's a lot of fun to participate that way. It really is. And we hope you'll join us on Patreon as always. We just think, I don't know, I just looked there the other day, there's 250 bonus episodes, I think, or something like that on Patreon. We've done a lot uh, over there and we hope you'll join us if you haven't already. Uh, But this story, yeah, as we said, this is uh, the second Borges story that you and I have covered. I don't know what order they're coming out in, but this story's great. It gets at least half of the other theme in it as well, in that it's a detective story, uh, and we'll have some fun looking at maybe what ways it could be an occult detective story in our discussion of it. But we need to look at how Borges is handling the detective genre first. So Glenn, why don't you take us right into the recap? Yeah, this has been really fun. It, it is a detective story, right? Death in the Compass, just that's just what it is. It's a detective story. And it is at least the first overlap between these two different themes. I didn't expect that there would be any. Uh, I didn't think that Borges had written a detective story like this, an occult detective story like this. Um, I don't know. Maybe we're going to find actually that one of the occult detective stories we read later on actually features Borges as a character or something like that. So there will be two different overlaps. (laughs) But at any rate, uh, this is an overlap and it's interesting, I think, all by itself. I'm looking forward to talking about that. I think here in this episode, but then also again at the end of the year in our year in review show. Uh, I should say that Borges is clear upfront that this is indeed a detective story. And he even spends the first paragraph telling us the broad outline of the story. The detective is named Eric Lundrat. He's a police detective, and there are many criminals who want to see him dead and, well, wouldn't mind helping him get that way. And Lundrat fancies himself a dispassionate detective, a uh, reasoning machine along the lines of Auguste Dupin. And uh, uh, that's a reference that Borges makes. So that's not actually me, even though it's one that I would make. That's Borges there. <laughs> and then finally, Borges tells us that Lundrat is going to be investigating a murder. But he also tells us that he won't solve the case. And Borges hints that uh, it's not going to end well for the detective. Brandon, I have to say that in all this I just thought this was a brilliant opening. Totally had me hooked at this point. 
It's awesome. It's so funny. And we also, for those of us who are interested, have our first indicator, our first sense of how you might try to write a Borges-style pastiche of an occult detective story. This is also something where, like, how can we blend these two themes? Well, somebody can just has to do it by writing a story. And I think this is a good place to start. You know, and maybe for fun in our discussion, we will think about some ways that this could be turned into a weird story so that we could think of Lone Rot. There's an umlaut over the O, and Glenn, we're just going to struggle with it for the whole episode here. (laughs) I might just say Lanrat. So you might be able to think then how Lanrat as an occult detective could be uh, used in an occult detective story rather than in a regular, albeit hilarious, detective story that Borges has written here. You know, one of the things that is so great about this opening, and there are a few things that are great about this opening paragraph, is the way that Borges tells us that Lanra neither solves the case we're about to read uh, nor prevents any crimes from taking place, but he did solve the puzzle of the case, and that is the most important thing if you're a mere reader of detective fiction. And it's clear that Borges has something like this on his mind, you know, something like the boundary of the page that separates the lives of readers from the actors in a story. And this is all going to cause us to think a little bit about literary theory in our discussion, because this story is explicitly engaged in some theory, uh, which is really the only time we talk about theory on the show at all. But in any event, yes, uh, we have this going on, this this playfulness with the genre. We also get the allusion to Dupin. But also, I think we're supposed to pick up on a, another bit of playfulness, which is an allusion to Sherlock Holmes as well. Scarlock, who we meet in this opening paragraph, is a character. Scarlock, the name is German for Scarlet. And Rot, which is the sec- second half of Lonrot's name, is German for Red. So everyone is named Red to some degree in this story, I guess. Uh, but to return to Dupin here, this is a move, referencing Dupin is a move that Arthur Conan Doyle makes in A Study in Scarlet. And this allusion, alluding to who you've Red is a kind of classic and noble move in literature. It's a kind of tip of the hat to who you're stealing from. And Borges is really upfront with that in the first paragraph of this tale. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. This paragraph is hilarious. It is full of these illusions, as you say. And uh, yeah, I've got a lot actually to think about here in terms of the expectations of of the genre and whether we're really actually reading stories about, you know, police <laughs> solving crimes or if we're just reading to have mysteries presented and then solved for us for our own amusement. And yeah, as you said, Brandon, apologies for our German pronunciation. I'm going to continue to try to pronounce that O with the umlaut over it. Uh, but boy, the <laughs> way I'm doing it, you would never know that I've actually lived in Germany. And as a, it is not sounding right coming out of my mouth after, uh, I guess, 10 years, 10 years later. But all right, as we said, the case is a murder case. And hey, let's go get the first victim. And this is Dr. Marcelo Yarmolinsky, an old Jewish scholar from Central Europe. Yarmolinsky is here, wherever here is, it's ever, not ever actually said in the text, but I'm assuming that this is meant to be Buenos Aires. But at any rate, Yarmolinsky is here to participate in the Third Talmudic Congress. His body is found in his hotel room the morning after his arrival. He's been stabbed to death, but with no obvious motive, no obvious reason for the killing. Now, Lunrod and his boss, the police commissioner, they arrive on the scene. 
And the commissioner says that, well, actually, Glenn, the solution is obvious, even though I, I don't think that it is, uh, because everyone knows that the rabbi in the room across the hall possesses the finest sapphires in the world. And therefore, this was a case of a robber breaking into the wrong room and then having to kill Yarolinsky anyway. Now, Lindrod agrees that that's possible, but he dismisses the hypothesis because... It's uninteresting. It's a boring hypothesis. And so instead, Lernrod wants to assume that the murder happened because of something specific about Yarmolinsky. And so he intends to search for a rabbinical solution to the murder of this rabbi. And indeed, there is already a clue waiting for him on the typewriter. The first letter of the name has been written. Lunrat now begins to study Jewish mysticism in order to crack the case, which is awesome. I'm, I'm hooked again. I didn't need to be hooked again, but I am. And he is especially interested in the idea that God has 99 names. Now, the case is naturally of special interest to the local Jewish newspaper, and Lunrat gives an interview to one of the journalists. Now, that journalist, in turn, writes an article about how Lunrat is studying the names of God in order to learn the name of the murderer. And that is where we stand, right before the second murder, which we'll take up next. I want to briefly return to this conversation between Lunrat and his uh, commissioner, just to quote some text here. So here's what Lunrat says to the commissioner, his boss, when the commissioner is like, hey, it's actually really just pretty obvious what happened here. This is Lunrat's response. Possible, but uninteresting. You will reply that reality has not the slightest obligation to be interesting. I will reply in turn that reality may get along without that obligation, but hypotheses may not. In the hypothesis that you suggest here on the spur of the moment, chance plays a disproportionate role. What we have here is a dead rabbi. I would prefer a purely rabbinical explanation, not the imaginary bunglings of an imaginary burglar. And so once again here, Lanra is really taking on the voice of the author in one sense and the reader in another, basically stating that, you know, here the obligations of the author and the expectations of the reader in, in Lanra's response to his commissioner. And it doesn't actually even feel out of place that an iconic detective should say something like this in a story about a super smart detective. The villains in a story like this have to rise to the occasion of the detective's intelligence in order to even get the detective's attention in the first place. And of course, Borges here in this story is going to deconstruct, I guess that's our theory word of the day, this convention throughout the story, um, but it's really here in, in plain sight at the opening. Lonrat's expectations of the case are what draw us in as readers. Because Lonrat wants there to be a rabbinical and, I don't know, esoteric explanation, so do we want Lonrat to ignore all of the conventional police work in order to find the solution to the case hidden within the secret works of Kabbalah that have been written or being explored by the murder victim? You know, is the killer a fanatic protecting the, the secrets of the Tetragrammaton? Is there something hidden in the universe that only close study can reveal? And is Lanra up to the task? These are all questions we now have as readers. Uh, and it's really 
funny because Von Rott does ignore police work and just goes at home with a stack of books. And we think we've been trained to think that that's the right thing to do. So by being so familiar with the conventions of the genre, Borges is able to hook us in so quickly and simply. We have a murder and a mysterious note and an interest in letters that at once conceal and reveal the name of God. So obviously it's all got to be related and Boy, does this story not disappoint. I don't want to ruin the punchline right right now, but yeah, it's going in some unexpected directions, or directions, though, that should not be unexpected. Borges is actually slyly being upfront with everything. But I think this harkens back, Brandon, to something that we talked about in The Thing Invisible by William Hope Hodgson, where we get that line about you know 1% of the cases, and we had a conversation about whether that story was actually one of the 99% or one of the 1%. <laughs> this idea that you, know, you have these iconic detectives who are doing this as a job. This is how they're making rent. And all the cases can't be interesting. I mean, that would actually be a terrible job, right? If all the cases were actually worthy <laughs> of a story. At Lernrod seems to feel like he's actually got some professional obligation to make every case be interesting enough for a story. And uh, that's a mistake. It's a mistake that's going to cost him. All right. Well, let's quickly go over the details of the next murders. The second victim is a known hooligan, and this murder happens exactly one month later, and near the victim is the message, the second letter of the name has been written. So it seems that this is some kind of ritual murder. Now, the third victim's murder is, well, it's a lot more complicated, but the salient facts here are that it happened exactly one month later, again, and the murderer wrote, the third letter of the name has been written. And the victim was himself studying Jewish mysticism. And in fact, one of the books that the victim had in his room had an underlined passage. The Jewish day begins at sundown. And while our first murder victim was an aging scholar at a conference, the second and third victims, I think, give us a taste of the criminal element here in this city, that I, I think at least is, is Buenos Aires. So we're getting a little bit of, uh, of world building and, and stage setting here that I quite like. It's really fun. I love the way Borges describes these criminals in the city. They're all either reformed criminals or they inform on one another, but their actions are all also caught up in some sort of political graft and corruption. And we get this kind of networked, layered effect that everyone is kind of on the same side. You know, the police and criminals work together with the politicians, but then they're all have these moments of antagonism or antipathy as well. And, you know, it's great. Lon Rot, though, is on. Corruptible. This is how he's accumulated so many of these personal enemies because he's stopping criminals and potentially police from profiting on the crime that is being committed by by the criminals. Crime, you know, to one degree or another. Murder is always foul, but uh, you know, theft is kind of maybe not so bad, and neither is graft. And it's just really funny how this network of crime, politics, and policing all intermingle and mix in these two paragraphs. We see where the criminal element is on display. And this is kind of even a, a trope that we see in detective fiction and detective shows today. We see often a really complex and intertwined system. And you begin to wonder if you take a step back and look at kind of the survey of the stories that we have of whether or not the goal of policing in these stories is to actually stop crime or to keep criminals on the street in order 
so that policemen can have CIs and informants or whatever. You know, and it leaves me with this feeling, this kind of idea that in detective fiction, we have police so that we can have crime, you know, kind of backwards of the approach we'd want to have. Right. This feels very much like a mid-20th century city, basically anywhere in the world, I think, right? Where at this point, organized crime is kind of just part of how city government works like they're just you know they're cc'd <laughs> on the, the 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 minutes of the meetings and and so on and uh, we even get a great line in this story in which this uh, criminal this organized criminal charlac who you mentioned at the uh, top at the beginning of the the episode brandon actually even gives a comment to the newspaper that uh, murders like this don't happen in the part of the city that he controls yeah, it's it's so great. You know, it reminds me of 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 that scene in The Wire, maybe in season two or three, where the Stringer Bell learns about you know Roger's uh, rules for meetings and tries to rent out like a hotel conference room and has all of the criminals follow those rules of order. And then somebody's like, "We can't be taking minutes here. We're engaged in criminal activity." <laughs> And just kind of thinking about this kind of overlap of, you know, a civilized society's reliance upon crime, the way the police and and politics have to look to that when they govern or police and uh, just how it all gets kind of caught up together when the only people you're interacting with the policemen happen to be criminals. That's more and more what society at large looks like to you. There's a lot that Borges is playing with here, and it's, it's great. But he's also pooling us through this story uh, by insisting that Lunarot's studiousness is what's going to get this case solved, even though we know that Lunarot doesn't stop any crime from happening. The one thing that Lunarot does is he picks up on a word, the word sacrifice, which was spoken by um, this, you know, shady Ginsburg, Ginsburg character at the bar through the phone call. And then he focuses on this underlined passage in, in, in the book as well that you pointed out. And these things to Lanra prove his hypotheses uh, and, and they help him to understand that because three crimes have been committed, a fourth crime must also be committed. Right. At this point, we're expecting that there is going to be another murder and that it's going to be in exactly one more month. But As that date approaches, the police commissioner receives a letter from someone using the name Baruch Spinoza, which is just a great touch. And uh, this letter explains that there won't be a fourth murder because the locations of the murders already form a mystical triangle when you uh, plot them on a map of the city. But Lenrot disagrees, though this line of thinking has actually given him the final clue that he needs to be in the right place to catch the murderers in the act tomorrow night. And uh, this is what he tells the commissioner. He's going to catch them. And so now we come to the showdown. And this takes place at the Villa Tristleroy, an abandoned mansion in the south part of the city. And there, Lenrot finds the notorious gangster, Red Sherlock. And when he expresses his surprise that... This is the person who is trying to discover the secret name of God. Sherlock, well, he chuckles, and also then he explains everything. You see, he isn't looking for the secret name of God. Rather, all the murders have been designed to lure Lonrot to this place, on this night, so that Sherlock can kill him. It's vengeance for having imprisoned Sherlock's brother, and also for getting Sherlock shot in the gut in the process— Now, I said all the murders, but that's actually not quite true. Sherlock did commit the second and third crimes so that they would fit a pattern. But the first murder, the opening incident, the inciting incident, that was a genuine 
crime, a genuine accident. In fact, it happened exactly like the commissioner said. It was a robbery gone wrong. And the message on the typewriter about the first letter of the name of God was was just something that the rabbi himself had typed. But when Sherlock read the article about the investigation, well, then he knew how he could get his vengeance. And so here we are. And so Lundrat dies, uh, though not before offering up a critique of Sherlock's criminal scheme and giving him some tips for how to do it better in their next lives. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, it, it is. Lanra has basically, instead of solving any crimes, converted to Kabbalah. And with some his final breath, as you allude to, Glenn, he makes some math jokes and talk about how talks about how uh, Sherlock is going to kill Lanra in the next life using something like a reverse of Zeno's paradox. And um, I don't know. It's all very mad. You know, Von Rapp, before being confronted by Sherlock, gets lost in the, in the house, the Tristel Roy, uh, because it's designed with this mirror image motif and labyrinthine architecture that makes it difficult for Lonrat to get around, I guess. And I mean, I think the joke here is Lonrat's getting lost in a house, right? He's really just a very aloof man. Um, and we're just told he's a great detective, or we're not even told that. We just believe it based on what he says and the way he's presented in the text. But in any event, this labyrinthine imagery that shows up at the end really underscores, as I was saying, Lonrat's detachment from reality and focuses on a need for a kind of simplicity that in the text says is provided by a single line rather than by a triangle or rhombus or whatever has four points that can represent a compass or, or the tetragrammaton. Uh, what I'm saying here is that at the end, we have a reversal of expectations. The criminal became the mastermind in order to ensnare the detective who really just needed a puzzle to solve. But why did the detective need a puzzle to solve? Maybe in part because we as readers need a detective who wants to solve puzzles. And, and this is kind of what's going to lead us into our discussion of this story. But before we jump into questions of literary theory and kind of dismantle this story a little bit, I want to ask you, Glenn, how did this just work for you as a detective story? You picked it up, you read it, you put it down. How did you feel about it? Oh, totally satisfied. I mean, this is this is an awesome story. It does everything that a detective story should. It gives us this bizarre and interesting series of crimes, gives us some of the clues that lets us try to put together what's actually happening, right? We're all trying to stay one step ahead of the detective, you know, if we're given access to all of the, the clues, which, which we are. Borges gives us all of the clues here. And then we actually get to be with the detective when he pieces it all together and we go with him to this final showdown. And that's all really satisfying, right? Because you're slow clapping, you're cheering, you're rooting for the detective. But then the rug of not just this story, but the entire genre is pulled out from <laughs> under us in a way that also is is totally satisfying. It gets us to look at these types of stories that we love and to look at the experience of being a reader of this type of story. And laugh at all of it, right? To not take it so seriously and to get some enjoyment out of really just the fictional portrayal of, of police work and detective work that we get in these stories, because it is actually all totally absurd. It really is. And I, I also loved this story. I think I enjoyed 
the heck out of reading it. I enjoyed thinking about it a lot. But Borges wasn't so hot on this story. Here's what he said about this story in uh, a lecture he gave on detective stories. Here I'm going to quote him. He said, I have on occasion attempted the detective genre, and I'm not very proud of what I have done. I've taken it to a symbolic level, which I'm not sure is appropriate. I wrote Death in the Compass. So I, I disagree with Borges here because I do think he succeeded in writing a detective story, even if it is a setup for a joke. But it's clear that Borges had on his mind something, if not about directly semiotics or the way signs and signifiers interplay together and um, obscure the real, which is what the symbolic is, then I think he definitely had something on his mind of wanting to play with structuralism. And before I go too much further into here, I don't think we're going to get into the symbolic because that's extremely technical. I do want to recommend an article, get your free JSTOR account uh, and look up an article called Death, the Compass and the Symbolic. I read about uh, five or six scholarly articles and, and blog posts, mostly scholarly articles, to look into what people were, have written about this story is Borges scholarship is a real thing. This was the only one that I thought was really worth its salt, and it's very good and will introduce you into the concept of the symbolic as it's used in fiction in particular, uh, and maybe dig into what Borges might have meant by saying taking the detective story to the symbolic may not have been a good idea. Again, I disagree with him, but we're not going to go down that road. We're going to, I think, focus on on structuralism, because I think that that topic is much more in the forefront of what's going on with this story than um, the symbolic, so to speak. But in any event, it's my feeling, Glenn, that what makes this story work, as I've said, is actually Borges playing with what the reader wants and expects from this type of story, which in kind is a, a part of the investigation of structuralism as it applies to literary theory, or at least as I understand it, applying to literary theory. Now, structuralism is a mid-20th century theory, uh, a, a critical mode of engaging with the humanities that looks at a network of systems and how they interact with one another in order to create meaning. So on the literary side of this theory of structuralism, we're not looking at the way, say, the text creates internal meaning within itself by the words it uses, by the repetition of words, and by the way the story is structured, and by the way structure can indicate meaning within a particular story or novel. That's new criticism and close reading. We do a lot of that on the show. Um, rather, we're looking at the way the structure of a text itself and the elements that we can abstract out of that structure tie in together with other texts of a similar structure to create meaning within the category of text or genre. Um, and after structuralism, or really during its height, is when we get deconstructionism with Derrida, which is uh, after the writing of this story and, and deconstructionism says something like, Hey, we can actually dismantle these structures and look at them and play with them and determine how exactly what elements of the structure are crucial to be included in the story in order for the meaning to be retained. So we also do this a lot on the show. We do these kind of deconstructive investigations of texts, uh, because we focus on, 
genres, how they function, what elements of the structure are needed for them to function. Uh, and then we'll also often talk about uh, how all of this works, what's present in a story, what's absent, how that works with our expectations. All of that's to say is that this story plays with broader the broader structure of detective stories and what our expectations are as readers and the interplay thereof. And I want to look at what Borges is doing here is maybe part of a, a proto-deconstructionalist project. So what we're going to do then, Glenn, is <laughs> we're going to look at some of the elements of the detective story, uh, especially of the Holmesian variety, which I think uh, Borges is playing with here. Uh, we're going to look at what's present in the tale and what's missing as well, You know what our expectations are. So maybe we'll just start there. What do you see as being present and missing in this story as a detective story? Well, let's start with what's here, what's actually present in the story. And well, the first thing is we have a detective, right? We have someone who's, whose job it is to be a detective. This is not even someone whose hobby it is to be a detective. And this is an official detective, right? Someone uh, equipped with uh, state power. Uh, so so we have that. And then, of course, also we have a crime that's, that's necessary, right? We have to have something that needs to be uh, detected. We have a crime that is unsolved and there's some mystery element to it, right? So the detective has to actually go out and detect or the investigator has to go out and investigate. And I mean, those are probably the two basic things that you need to have a detective story. There are certainly other elements here that Borges has included that matter for for you know this or that type of detective story. Uh, for one, uh, this is actually kind of a hard-boiled detective story, right? Where we've got the criminal element of of the city. Uh, there's a sense that uh, you know jewel thieves are just kind of running around the city. There's organized crime elements. Uh, we also have journalists actually play an important role in this story. And so we get this sense, as you mentioned in the recap, Brandon, we get this sense of how, you know, how the city functions, right? And we get the idea that this this city is kind of a character in the story. And that's a real hallmark of your hard-boiled detective story. And of Holmes's London as well. I, th- I think that's pretty good. I mean, you, I think anybody who reads the story would feel as though they're getting a complete picture of the detective and of the world the detective is solving crimes in. But what I want to suggest is it might be missing from the story is any of the detective's bona fides. And what we're left with then is the sense that this is a great detective, when in reality, Lone Rot's a little bit more of uh, uh, of an Inspector Clouseau, I think. But you don't really get the sense of that until the end of the story, right? We, we, we do know he solved crimes, but even up front, we're told that he's not solving this crime. He's not preventing any crime, but all he's done is solve the puzzle. And just by knowing that, we think he's a great detective. And I want to get your sense of like why that is, why we don't really need the detective's bona fides. What is Borges doing right that lets us ignore all of the clues about the detective being a bit of a, of a blank shell, so to speak? Well, we get the Sherlock Holmes monologue, although it's also an Auguste Dupin monologue as well, right? We get this monologue where he even supplies both sides of the conversation. I mean, it's supposed to be a dialogue, I guess, but it is him monologue. He's like, you're going to say X, I'm going to say Y, then you're going to say X and I'm going to say Y. So I'll just say all of it. And uh, that's that's Sherlock Holmes showing off, right? This is the thing that we get at the beginning of your iconic Sherlock Holmes stories where Holmes explains to Watson who it is that's just about to ring their doorbell and why, even 
though Holmes hasn't even bothered to look out the window, you know, he can just tell things from the sounds or whatever. That's the way that Holmes gives us his bona fides or the way that Doyle gives us Holmes's bona fides, I guess, right? To show us his resume, his skill, why his talent, why he's the detective. We have that mimicked here, but because we know in the end that it turns out all to be wrong, we are left, as you suggest, wondering if Lernrot is actually any kind of good detective at all. I am not prepared to go as far as you are, Brandon. I think you're suggesting that he's uh, like the inspector gadget of this story where he gets <laughs> you know, the credit for solving the crimes, but actually it was his niece the whole time. I think Lone Red probably actually has solved some crimes and some like high profile cases at some point. And that maybe what's going on here is that he's gotten rather full of himself and, and, and also bored, I think, right? That the idea that it's just some hoodlum who uh, went in the door on the left when he was supposed to go in the door on the right, that's boring. That's I don't want to do that type of work anymore. I need this to be more interesting. Uh, so I don't know that we're seeing a buffoon so much as we're seeing someone who needs a vacation. I think that's right. Yeah, I, did, I, I guess the, the Inspector Clouseau bit uh, might have been a bridge too far here. But I want to emphasize that in terms of structuralism, you know, we expect to see the detectives bona fides in the story. And we're really very quickly satisfied with something so small as somebody being, you know, insubordinate. It did the act of insubordination here, talking to his boss this way, not letting his boss speak. His boss actually ends up being right, is enough to prove to us as readers that Lonrot has these bona fides when in fact he does not. He doesn't do any real police work. He just like gloms on to certain words. He goes homes and read books, reads books for a month between crimes, when in fact the crimes have been manufactured to ensnare him. And so there's this sense, and, and as, so in structuralism, um, we'd say, okay, this is part of the structure of a detective story. This needs to be present. But as we look at this kind of deconstructionist position, what Borges is doing here is saying, yes, this I need to demonstrate bona fides. I will do it in a way that satisfies the expectation of the structure of a detective story or the way detective stories function as a network of texts, but I will also do it in a way that shows I can actually deconstruct this part of the story, right? I can sh I can put it here formally, but it's doing multiple jobs. And one of the jobs it's doing is to get us to question whether or not Lonrat's actually a good detective if he's just stepping into the shoes of filling the shoes of the reader's expectations here. And I think it's just brilliant. I mean, this is just such a great little interplay. What it is here, I'm using a bunch of literary terms, literary theory terms to describe comedy, right? This is satire. This is parody. And it's done extremely well. It is because it feels for almost the whole story like it's not satire or parody. You don't know this until the end. And even knowing it, you know, I went back and read it again, knowing that of course, you know, several times for the episode and still enjoyed it as a straight detective story, <laughs> even though I know it's a parody and that there's going to be a punchline at the end because it's just written so, so perfectly. Well, I do want to jump to the end end of the story here uh, to, to maybe investigate another type of the big, big umbrella genre to ask kind of a, a metafictional question or, or something like that. But I, I, I don't know what really ends up killing Lanra at the end of the day. And in the, in the big umbrella genre sense, I want to ask, is this story a tragedy where the protagonist's fatal flaw is what kills them ultimately? Or do we need to read this story as comedy in what kills Lanra 
is the reader expectations, is what the reader wants from the detective. Uh, so I'm going to kick that question to you and, and, I don't know, ask you to think about this story in kind of the big, big tent genre categories instead of the detective genre category. Is it tragedy or comedy? And in what way is it either? I think you can make a case for either reading here. And certainly there's uh, a part of me that wants to say that it, it it's tragedy, right? To, to read this from the perspective of inside the text and to empathize with our detective character and see this as his downfall. I mean, even the scene of his downfall here at the end is called like, you know, this this villa, the, the sadness of the king, right? Which you know, gives us this sense of a king being struck <laughs> low, you know, at the end, which is exactly what tragedy is. But I think it's hard for me to privilege that over the comedic reading, to have a kind of metafictional reading of this and to think of this, you know, right, primarily, principally as parody in which we are seeing Borges play around with the expectations of the genre and really laying Lonrod's death on us, the readers, for for making these expectations to begin with. So I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for comedy here, even though I think there's a case for tragedy. I think it has to be right. I think that that's actually part of the the brilliance here of the story is that what makes this story a comedy is our culpability as readers in Lonrat's death. We want him to solve the puzzle more than we want him to engage with the human element of the crime that he's engaged with. He's so abstracted. He's so aloof, which is what readers, addicted readers of detective fiction do. They, they I've known people who can read like, you know, 30 detective novels a month. I, I could never do that. I, it's not within my power as a reader. And it's not a negative. I'm just saying I'm, I'm astonished whenever I see people able to read a detective novel a day or something like that. But I think that that's the reader that Borges has in mind. It's like, it's your fault that there are all these bodies littering the pages of, <laughs> of detective stories. You can't stop, can you? And I think that's really funny. It's kind of a, a gentle call out to how we get our entertainment um, by placing Lonrat's story in this sort of uh, tragic framework, but the comedy is entirely metafictional. It's, it's, it's really great. We should call attention as well, I think, even to the history of crime fiction, of, of mystery fiction, that we, at this point, you know, the early 1940s, Borges is writing this story, murder has not been the default setting of crime fiction for very long, right? Today, we think if we're going to read a mystery book, if someone just says, hey, I read a great mystery novel, uh, here's my copy of it, uh, pass it on to someone else when you're done, we assume, without even looking at the book, that what it is is a murder mystery, we assume that we're about to read a story about a murder or perhaps multiple murders that need to be solved by somebody. But that was a pretty new default setting when Borges wrote this story, that it's not really until the Americans, really, till we get uh, Hammett and Chandler, that murder becomes the default setting. Um, yeah, maybe I'm sim oversimplifying that, but certainly when we've got Dupin and we've got Sherlock Holmes, there are bodies, there are murders for sure, but that's not every case. That's not every crime. And so I think that's one of the things that maybe Borges has on his mind here is that it's really only been about 20 years, 15 years that murder has been the default setting of these types of stories. And wow, it's, it's a big change. It's a big cultural change in readers that they just want bodies 
everywhere. This is actually even something that uh, Chandler wrote an essay about, this major shift, actually, in crime fiction towards murder, murder, murder. That wasn't true when Hammett started writing Hammett's earliest mysteries. And, you know, Hammett, of course, invented Sam Spade, the Maltese Falcon. Hammett's earliest stories were not really about murder. They were about, you know, thefts and and so on. But now by the time Borges is writing this story, murder is what people want. And it's a bit weird, right, to think that this is what people want to read about grim and grisly murders and the people who commit them. It's, uh, you know, from a zoomed out perspective, it says something weird about us as people that we thirst and crave for these stories. It does. And and in the same way that Borges kind of does that inversion where like we have police so that we can have criminals, I think it's the same way with with Scarlock is 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 what Borges is demonstrating here in the story, or Sherlock, is that we don't actually want great, brilliant detectives. They're just a front for what we really want, which is a brilliant criminal. And I think that that is also kind of a part of the deconstruction element of this story is is Borges laying bare the perverse reality of the fact that we only have this kind of detective who, in Lonrat's case, isn't even really a great detective, so that we can read about brilliant sick criminals. <laughs> and I think that Borges is kind of making that joke here as well, is pointing out to readers, okay, you want a brilliant detective, you want Batman? Well, what maybe what you really want is the cro- a Killer Croc or something like that. I don't know who really wants Killer Croc, but it's that kind of inversion too that Borges is pointing out with this story as well, the the kind of uh, perverse desire of the, the the broader readership of these stories. I think that's exactly right. I was starting to think about Batman as well, right? Because this has become a uh, kind of a cliche, really, at this point, idea of, of Batman. It's all over Batman uh, on page, all over Batman on screen, this idea that uh, we have the Joker and also Killer Croc, I guess, because of the Batman. It's not the other way around, right? These criminals come into existence because Batman is here. And of course, Sharlak, I think, you know, if we're going to map him onto a Batman villain, he's the Riddler, right? He's someone who loves the puzzles and and mysteries. And this is what the Riddler does is he, he toys with Batman by leaving him clues. And sometimes actually it turns out that there isn't even a crime, you know, it's all been faked or something like that. Uh, But this Borges story predates the Riddler. The Riddler doesn't appear until the late 1940s. So this story is at least four or five years uh, before the Riddler. I would would like to think that Bill Finger actually maybe read this story and based the Riddler on Sherlock. I'm sure that someone can show that that's not, that that's not actually the genesis of the Riddler, but that's my headcanon right now. Yeah, I, I'm sure that that's the case. Well, I want to leave this literary theory stuff behind. As I said, uh, really, I really recommend that article, Death, the Compass, and the Symbolic, if you want to go into, um, you know, Lacanian configurations of reality and how the symbolic functions in literary texts, and also maybe what Borges meant by his own comments about this story. It's highly readable and uh, quite quite a good article. It's written by four people, so you know it's good. Uh, I want to move us now into really just the final question here, which is the fun part of the discussion, which is how could we turn Lanra into an occult detective? What moves could we make in this story to make Lanra, to make this story an explicitly occult detective story instead of one that maybe just flirts with the occult a little bit? Yeah, I think here that the distinction between whether or not this is an occult detective story is simply that the ritual 
murders. Of course, they're not actually ritual murders, it turns out. But even when we think that they are, the ritual murders really are germane to a real-world living religion with millions of adherents. And so it doesn't have that weird sense to it there uh, that if we had replaced this with, say, the Cthulhu cult, right? If we'd replaced Judaism with the Cthulhu cult, uh, say, um, you know, just given it a bit of yog sothry, then I think just even on the skin of it, this totally would be an occult detective story. That's how people would would talk about it. So I don't know that there's a whole lot of work that actually needs to be done to do that. Uh, but I think, you know, one thing you could do if you were trying to make this not parody, right, if you were trying to make this a straight detective story and an occult detective story on top of that would be to have Sherlock actually trying to discover the 100th name of God and actually be committing these ritual murders, you know, because of it, right? To have this motivation that Lonrot sees that is not true, actually have that be true. For me, I think that would be also enough to make this uh, an occult detective story. Yeah, I think you've covered all the bases there. I, 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 I can't think of anything else. I mean, you could have a, a golem in it, I suppose, if we're dealing with Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. Um, but I think that would be a bridge too far. I much, much prefer this cult angle you're taking because the end of the story reminds me a lot of the end of Carl Edward Wagner's Sticks, where kind of Lanrat shows up and he's, invi- or he's invited or finds his way to this place where, uh-oh, it turns out, you know, this was all kind of a setup to some to one degree or another. And uh, that's the direction. I, that's the only thing I would tweak uh, beyond what you've been saying is to have this trap be kind of an invitation to some degree, which it is. It's just a dark, a dark invitation. I know we are nearly closing out this episode, Brandon, but this line of conversation has me wondering about uh, Indiana Jones, which we, of course, have covered here on the show before. And, you know, Indiana Jones is, of course, principally adventure fiction, with some weird elements to it, especially in Temple of Doom, as we've talked about. But Indiana Jones as archaeologist is, uh, well, terrible, but he is something of a detective. (laughs) He's an investigator, right? And, you know, his investigating is a little more Batman-esque in that it involves a lot of, you know, physical adventure and so on. But he's following clues to find where the, you know, MacGuffins have gone and who's taken them and, and how to get at them and so on. But of course, we do have in all three of the well, I'll just say canonical, so I guess I could say good Indiana Jones movies. You know, there is a supernatural element to them. But I wonder if that element is necessary for us to think about Indiana Jones as an occult detective, right? You know, an occult detective who's more adventurous than uh, investigatory, I suppose. But um, I think it'd be fair to think of Indiana Jones as a type of occult detective. And I actually don't think that the supernatural elements need to be there. I don't think we need to have the the weird ghosts coming out of the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders. I don't think that we need to have the, the cup, the grail, actually confer some kind of immortality at the end of Last crusade for those stories to be considered occult detective stories. I think you're absolutely right. I was I was thinking about that as well. You know, the degree to which Indiana Jones is an occult detective, uh, which he is, and like in the most basic sense, what he's doing is investigating the fringe elements of very popular cults or sects of religions um, where people believe that the numinous stuff is real and they can bring it about. And of course, the goal of every occult detective is to stop 
the numinous from invading our material reality. Um, and so, yeah, I think in that sense, uh, Indiana Jones fails four times out of four, but he does solve the puzzle. He's a, he's a Lanra. He's a Jones. Indiana Jones is a uh, is a occult detective patterned after this Lanra type of. Lone rat type of uh, detective. <laughs> well, we have uh, we've taken this uh, Borges story and made it mostly about Indiana Jones and Batman, which <laughs> I didn't predict, but it makes me feel like we've uh, we've done our work. Yeah, well, I think on that note, we we need to wrap up here. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please do join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so that you can help us select our themes for next year. I think these themes have just been uh, well, a ton of fun for us so far. We're, we're not even halfway through going through these two different themes, but it's just been a blast. And of course, this story in particular with the overlap. So we hope that you'll consider joining us so that you can participate in making those choices for us for next year. Next time, we will be back with the next installment in Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire. It's the chapter called Limping to Jerusalem. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>